So today we're finishing up our look at the gospel. This is our last of the 50 days of our gospel focus. And uh, this is going to be um, really, really our last dig, de- uh, well, deep dig into the gospel. But if you pay attention, you'll see that the gospel is what we talk about all the time. So today, what I want to start with, I want to start in the, I want to start in the doctor's office. You know, we've been to the doctor's office, many of you. It's not quite as much fun as it used to be. They don't have the magazines for you to uh, read. We can't be spreading germs that way. Um, it's a little more impersonal. Everybody's wearing masks and masks upon masks. But when we go to the doctor, we usually have something wrong. We have something that is not working the way it should be. I'm not talking about our regular checkups. But we're going to the doctor and we say, there's something wrong. We, we have diagnosed that there is something not the way it should be. We go to the doctor. We ask the doctor. We say, hey, here's what I got going on. Help me figure this out. And we trust that the doctor is going to make a correct diagnosis. The word diagnosis means with knowledge. right? We expect the doctor to use the knowledge they have to figure out what's wrong with us. But what's scary is that sometimes we get misdiagnosed. And that's a scary place to be in. When they say it's this, but it's actually that. Because a misdiagnosis will lead to all sorts of complications. Sometimes even life-threatening. So each and every one of us lives in this world and there's something wrong. We have diagnosed that there's something wrong with this world. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. There is something going on. But if we get the diagnosis right, if we don't get the treatment right, if we don't get the understanding right, the the problem, then we'll get a misdiagnosis and we'll put ourselves in a place where we might hurt ourselves. See, our world gets this. We get that there's something wrong. Our world actually gets this right. We are alienated. We are disconnected. The problem, though, is is our world says, well, we're disconnected from who we are deep down. But in actuality, our problem is much, much greater. It's not a disconnect from who I am on the inside. It's a disconnect for who made me. See, our, our, our world loves to say, you got to figure out who your true self is, and then you got to live out your truth. you got to live it out. you got to act in accordance with your truth. And most of the time, they figure it out by what you do. Well, do you like to do this? Then you are that. Do you feel comfortable here? Then you are this. It not only says this, but our world declares this in everything. Just watch. Watch movies. Watch television. Listen to music. Read articles. Read books. Listen to the influencers. And they all say, be true to yourself. Figure out who you are by what you like and what you feel. And then that's who you are. Your identity becomes based on what you do or what you feel. So what they say is they say your your doing determines your being. Your actions determine your identity. Your emotions determine who you really are. That's a scary place to be in. See, the one thing our world doesn't want to talk about is that the things that we do can be easily taken away in a heartbeat. Emotions and feelings can change in a heartbeat. I've been around a lot of junior hires as a teacher. Emotions fluctuate up and down. I mean, hour to hour, minute to minute. And if we're honest with ourselves as adults, we have the same issue. We just like to think that we're a little bit more grown up than the junior hire, but really we're still all junior hires on the inside. 
Our emotions are going up. Our emotions are going down. Our likes and our dislikes change. So if we were to build who we are based on what we do, what a load of hooey. It's a sinking sand. It's building your house on sand. But see, this alienation we have is not with our true selves. It's from our true God. We have the problem right. We got the solution. We got the people involved all wrong. The real problem is we are finding our identity in anything other than God. We are buying the world's lie that we have to find our identity in what we do or what group we belong to or what class, what race, whatever label we want to use instead of in finding our identity in Christ. See, the world says, you want to find out what you are and who you are? What do you like? And then that's who you are. Instead, the Bible says something exactly opposite. The Bible says that who you are determines what you do, not what you do determines who you are. See, the gospel gets this in the right order. The gospel says you have to first know who you are before you know what to do, not do what you do so you know who you are. Believing in the gospel changes our identity. And only when it changes our identity can we then understand and follow the guidelines in the Bible. See, many of us think that to be a Christian, God said, okay, you want to be a Christian? Here's your list of things you got to do. Matter of fact, that's what our world believes. They believe Christians do, 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 which makes them a Christian. See, they're using their worldview, which is what you do determines who you are, on us. And they see us doing things and they go, well, see, they're a Christian because they do these things. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches instead, you are new. You are a totally different creation. And then your identity as this new creation spreads into your life and transforms what you do. No longer are you controlled by the old identity. You are controlled by the new. And this is why we have focused on the gospel. See, we never can get past the gospel. We have to take the gospel daily and apply it to our lives. If we think we outgrow the gospel, two things can happen. The first thing that can happen is that we will claim to be Christians without doing anything Christian at all. We'll say, I'm a Christian, yep, I prayed a prayer, I'm good, I've never done anything else for God, I am a Christian, that's it. And that's a scary place to be in. The second thing is that we can do all sorts of Christian-y things but not actually be a Christian and be saved. Also a very scary place to be. In both places, we've disconnected our identity. The first one saying, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't need to do anything. That's disconnecting your identity from your doing, from your being from doing. The other one says, well, I don't need that identity. I'm doing all the Christian things. Also a disconnect from the being and doing. We have to get these in the right order. We've talked about this multiple times. We have to get who we are in Christ before we begin doing what we are to do in Christ. Now, I promise you, some of you will hear today that I am making a list of things that we have to do. And and, and don't miss out that before we start talking about any doing, we have to talk about being. We have to talk about who we are in Christ before we can ever do any of the doing and have it matter. Because it's all about being in Christ. It's all about our identity in Christ as what informs all of our doing. And this passage today is, is probably the clearest one in the Bible. And I'm really glad 
to be preaching it to you today. And it's the perfect one to finish with. So here we go. Here's our big idea. Believing the gospel produces new people with a new purpose. Believing the gospel produces new people with a new purpose. And I'm already going to apologize. There's a lot of slides. If you're trying to write everything down, I will give you my notes right after the service. You can have them. I can email them to you. I can photocopy them. If you just want to listen, that's fine. Um, Or if you want to burn up the pen, that's good too. So believing the gospel produces new people with a new purpose. So the first part, we are new people. And we see this in verses 14 through 17. This is the being. This is the identity, the new identity. And we see this starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for their, who for their sake died and was raised. Look at what this says. It says they are controlled. We are controlled by Christ. We are controlled by him. He is in charge of us. This new creation that we are is giving over the controls. You know, you've seen the bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot, or something along those lines. No, Jesus has put us in the storage container area, and he's in charge of the whole thing. That's the picture the Bible gives us. We are a totally new creation, new person in charge. We don't get a say. We get to submit. And look at this. It says, we are controlled by another. No longer do we live for ourselves, but for Christ. This is a huge change. That we no longer live for ourselves. It's not about me, but it's about him. Our identity, our being is changed. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. This word flesh is one of those words that gets used all throughout the Bible. What it means here is it means the worldly way of looking at things. At some point in your life, you viewed Christ as just another cool story, and that was it. And we viewed each other in the worldly way of the flesh, and the world way of the flesh divides. Don't we see this? Everybody's divided about all sorts of things. You're divided by rich, poor, white, black, Democrat, Republican, mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine. Left hand, right hand. We just break everything up into groups all the way across. That's the fleshly way of breaking things up and disunity. Instead, the Bible makes it clear. The gospel makes it clear. There are two groups of people. There are those who are in Christ and thus saved from the wrath of God and those who are not in Christ and the wrath of God is still on them for their sin. And this is the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, you know, there's this get out of jail free card. No, the gospel is the son of God came and took all of the punishment that you deserved in your place. Not because you're great, but because he is. But he is going to then give you his righteousness and make you great based upon that. This is why it's good news. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the original Greek, the word order goes like this. So that if anyone in Christ, new creation. One author says, it's boom, new creation. Okay, they don't, Greeks didn't use exclamation points. But their way they worded this, it is new creation, new creation, 
It's yelling it as close. I mean, this is all caps, bolded, underlined, 50 exclamation points. This is Paul saying, new creation, if you're in Christ, you're totally new. This is the best news possible. Now, for some of us, it's like that. It's the God comes in and grabs us, and we have our Saul of Tarsus moment on the way to Damascus or on a toilet seat, right? Others, it's a slow-moving thunder that eventually culminates, no matter what, it culminates in a new creation. You are no longer the old. The old is gone. The new is here. John MacArthur, in responding to this, uh, this passage, says, as new creations, we get four things. And these four things are directly opposed to the world's view, which is, do what you want, and that's who you are. Instead, we have these things. The first thing we have is we have security. We have security. Christ's death on the cross has already happened. It's been paid in full. There is nothing left to be done. And he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. There's no getting out of it. Can't be taken away. The second thing we see is we have acceptance. The believer's acceptance is not based on us. I mean, think about that. If I find my identity in something I can do, then I lose that identity as soon as I can't do it. That's, that's a scary thing. I know of a professional athlete who said he's still playing professional football because he doesn't know who he is as soon as he retires. He is scared to figure out who he is because as soon as football's gone, he doesn't know. So our acceptance is not based on anything that can be taken from us because it's found in Christ. The third thing we see is we have assurance. The believer's future assurance of heaven is because Jesus, the one who we are in, has now gone there before us and is waiting. That's the assurance that we have. See, that resurrection thing and ascension up to heaven, it's kind of a cool story, but it's more than that. It is, this is where Jesus is going. He's the pathfinder. He's taking us where he is. And then last, we have participation. We have participation in the nature of Christ. We belong to God forever. When God looks at us, he doesn't see this messed up wretch that's really good at sinning. Instead, he sees Jesus Christ in our place. We participate in Christ's righteousness. So as we go through these next few verses, look for this because this is what this is all about. Security, acceptance, assurance, participation. This is what it means to be new creations. So this idea of new creation means to break with the past. It's a continuous, the, the, the past is gone. Do you remember when you first came to know Christ? Some of you came at a very early age. Some of you came later in your life. But it's this, this change of seeing the world. The Bible goes from being a book that you can find placed by the Gideons in a hotel here or there to a, a now it's love letters. It, it's something you, you pour over and you go, how could I not see that before? Nature seems to have changed. No longer is it just random chance, but you start to see direction in everything. New wonders fill the heaven and earth. My kids and I, we went to a planetarium at the Creation Museum, actually Ark Museum, the Ark Encounter. And as we were there, we, we saw all of the distances in the universe and all of these colors that only until recently God was keeping into himself. Because we couldn't see them as humans. 
And I think about that is so amazing that God made that just for himself to see, to show how great he was. And when we get this, when we become these new creations, all of this stuff, all of this old creation has a new meaning to it. Not only that, but it changes the way we feel about others. There's a new kind of love. I mean, if we didn't all know Christ, I'm not sure this room, we would all be friends. But we are all friends. We are all family based on the fact that we have Christ. That's the new picture. It reminds me of a story. My sister, who's two and a half years younger than me, um, when she was a kid, she did this weird thing. And when my mom would talk to her, she'd pull my mom's head to face my sister, and, and they couldn't figure out what she was doing. They just thought it was kind of a cute thing. But then they realized she couldn't hear. She wasn't able to hear most sounds. And so she was moving my mom's face towards her so that she could read her lips. And so my sister had to get what were called tubes in her ears, which basically, because of the way she was developing, her ears had closed. And so they put these tubes in, and then the, basically your ears make the tubes you're supposed to have. My mom said the first thing she said when she was in the doctor's office, she had the tubes in and they had handed her a 7-Up because they had had to knock her out to put the tubes in and she was waking up and she went, it crackles. She had never heard the sound of the 7-Up popping. And then when she got outside, she walked outside and she went, what? That's birds singing. She had never heard the song of a bird at age four. She had never heard that. And I just think that's the way it is for us when we come to know Christ. Our world has been changed. It is totally radically different. And we go, what? How did I miss that before? He once was blind, and now we see. So if you're a new creation, that's the world that you are in. If you're not a new creation, this is the world offered to you. To have an identity that it cannot be taken away. This radical reorientation regeneration is here to stay. And Paul gets us with this. He says, the old has passed away. And he puts that word behold in there. That's another way of saying, exclamation point, the old is gone, praise the Lord. We are no longer bound by the old man. The old man is gone. And you'd say, wait a second, but sin is still here. Yes, it is. But it doesn't control you anymore. It doesn't run you. You are no longer a part of the old age. You're in God's new age. It's lost its control on us. This is what the prophets had long anticipated. Originally, they thought it was going to be all at once and the old was going to go away. But the old is still here. And we, it's because God is wanting to bring as many out of the old into the new before he comes and wipes away the old completely. Our new identity has been transferred to this new age in God. And when Jesus comes back, finally the old will be gone. You guys know, when we die and we go to be with the Lord, that's not the end. That's just the start. We go to be in the presence of the Lord. It's a spiritual realm at which he is going to eventually bring us back and give us new, risen, physical bodies on a new heaven and a new earth. Can you imagine living in this earth with no dying, no pain, no tears, there's a lot of extreme sports that I will be doing in the new heaven and new earth. And I think I'll see a few of you with me. I know it. So that, that idea, though, of 
all of that gone. The old will be completely destroyed. How do we know this? Because Christ has already come and he started the old death. The de old is dying. So that's the new creation. That's the identity we're supposed to have if we're in Christ. So I offer that for you. If you do not have that, today is the day. Salvation is here for you today. Now for those of you that have that, whether it was 50 years ago or six months ago, now we get to know why we're here. Isn't that a question that most of the people in this world want to have answered? Why am I here? That's the search for being and doing. Well, God tells us why we are here. And we have a new purpose. And this will be verses 18 through 21. This is the doing. So once we know who we are in Christ, the doing just spills forth. It just can't help but happen. So this section lays out three really key points. And I want to bring them out to you before we get into the passages because I want you to see them. The first one is God alone acts. God's the one that does all of this. All of this work that has been done, all of this new creation, it's not done by me. It's done by God in me. Really, my job is just to get out of the way and experience it. Because ultimately, God is the one who does it. The second thing we see is how he does it. He does it through Christ's death. Christ and Christ alone is the means of reconciliation. See, we are disconnected and we are alienated from God. Christ brings us back. Christ removes the impediments. And then the third thing we see is that God continues to act. God continues to act. Now, he does it two different ways. He does it through still doing miracles and still doing amazing things, but he also does it through us. He does it through how we interact with those around us. And this is the, this is the sharing of our lives, the sharing of the fact that we've been reconciled. We can't help but share it. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Again, all of it comes from God. We cannot participate in these new realities without God having done the work. See, God is the one who does it all. He takes care of his wrath by sending his son. He, he is the creator of the messenger. He is the creator of the ministry and the message of reconciliation. All of reconciliation, our wrong relationship with God is our fault, but God comes in and fixes it. And for a lot of people, this makes no sense. Of all the religions in the world, this is what makes Christianity unique. Christianity is the only religion where God does all the heavy lifting. Actually, no, I take that back. It's the one that does all the lifting. And we get all the reward. Every other religion, it's some mix of that. Most religions, it's you have to do all these things and hopefully God's paying attention and you're good. But not here. God is the offended party and he fixes the offense. God is the one who's been wrong and he comes and makes peace. It's our guilt, it's our responsibility, but yet God has done it. One author writes, this is why this is so shocking and so foreign. Our, wor our world has no words for this. Paul elsewhere calls this foolishness to the Greeks and stumbling block to the Jews. It made no sense to have a God who was offended, who was blasphemed, whose law was violated regularly and willfully, who then desires to reconcile all those violators to himself and to do so by offering himself as a sacrifice. You can see why this is foolishness. This is a stumbling block. It makes no sense. Why would God come down and do this? We're the ones that have the problem. 
But yet this is the gospel. This is the good news that he did it. This reconciliation, this restoration of friendly relationships is not just God ignoring our problems. It's not just going, well, yeah, we'll take a break. No, this is the total and objective removal of the problem. And I think we need to get that because this is where we struggle sometimes when we say, well, you know, I've been made right with God. In our minds, we kind of go, yeah, but I'm sure God still holds me accountable for that, that one I did back there or, or this one over here. But that's not what this says. It says reconciled, which means the, the, the problem, the alienation is gone. We can now have relationship with him. See, we like to think that a lot of our, our sin is just misunderstanding, just a little, little problem here or there. But in actuality, it's rebellion. It's not just rebellion, it's radical rebellion, and it's constant rebellion. We are constantly rebelling against God and not doing what he says. Our rebellion has earned the wrath of God. But instead of an enemy, he looks at us as a friend. And why? Because of Christ. This is the good news. Not good advice, not good way of living, not a good story. This is the good news. A news as in an announcement. This is all people need to hear this announcement. And so Paul takes us to the ministry of reconciliation. This is the idea that not only does God want to reconcile you and you and you, but he wants to reconcile everyone to himself. And so now we have the ministry to go do this. This word ministry in the Greek means to wait tables. It means to serve others. And I'm not, not thinking about going down to biscuits, sorry if that makes you hungry, and having the person wait on you, and you leave them a tip and you pay them. No, this is the servant who doesn't get paid, who waits on you hand and foot. That's the picture that we are given here. God has said, I want you to be the servant to go and reconcile others to me. Just like Christ, who plunged into the midst of human chaos to bring peace. That's what we're called to do. There's a reason we're called Christians, little Christ, because when we do this ministry of reconciliation, we are in the place of Christ. God not only restored us to himself, he sent us out as messengers to flood the world with his story, to flood the world with his good news. Verse 19, that is, in Christ God has reconciled, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Really, Paul's restating it, but going a little bit deeper. He wants to amplify this. He wants us to see that Christ was the reason. God sending Christ in our place was the reason we can be reconciled. That word counting is a bookkeeping term. It means they are no longer in our record. They're not in our ledger. They're out. They're gone. And then it says he covers us with his righteousness, which we'll get to in a minute. See, this message of reconciliation is not a feel-good message for someone on their way to hell. It's a reorienting of their life. It's a reorienting of our life. This message is always meant to point beyond ourselves to someone else. Not to ourselves, not to this church, but to what God has done. See, we live in what's called a post-Christian world. Now, the world as a whole is post-Christian, and Oregon's probably a post-post-Christian. Right? We, we have moved to a place where, unlike what it was even 50, 40, maybe even 20 years ago, there is no baseline understanding of the Bible, of God, 
and of Jesus. If anything, in our world right now, those three are the problems. It's not that people sit back and go, you know, I think church might be important. No, they think church is the problem. Beliefs in God and Jesus are not seen as a possible solution. So non-believers are not going to make their way to a church. They're not going to do it. They're just not. This is not seen as a place for answers. This is a place of problems. So we're going to have to do something different if we want to reach our neighborhood, our city for the Lord. But praise be to God, this is not the first time this has happened. There was a period of time when we were called, when the world was a pre-Christian world. That was the place that the apostle Paul was going to. That's the world Paul is writing into. Nobody knew what Christianity was. There was this guy named Jesus, but there were no churches. There were no outreach programs. There was nothing. There were simply Christians and their neighbors. Christians and their families. Christians and their co-workers. The church was unknown originally. We're right back there now. The church is unknown right now. So Paul foresees this, and Paul explains it, and this is a message right here for us, and we see it in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Notice it does not say, I. Paul doesn't say, hey, I'm the ambassador. You guys all just, you know, look at me. He says, we, the entirety of the Corinthian church, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, an ambassador is somebody who has no value in and among themselves. Their value is only because of who they represent. The weight of the position comes not from the dignity of the person, but the dignity of the person they represent. And so Paul is calling us, all of us, to be reconcilers, to take God's peace treaty to the world and say, listen, God wants to make amends. He's fixed our problem. The problem is not you and your true self. The problem is you and your true God. I mean, think about this. Think about uh, what would be a good ambassador. So let's say, you know, you get a phone call and you're appointed, appointed to be the ambassador to Mongolia. And you go, I don't really want to go to Mongolia. Tahiti, you know, Bermuda, you know, I'll go to some of those places. But I really don't want to go to Mongolia. No offense to Mongolia. It's probably nice. But you go, I don't want to go there. I'm just going to stay here and be an ambassador. By definition, you can't be an ambassador if you stay in your home country. To be an ambassador, you have to be in a foreign country. When we walk outside these doors, yes, we're still in our country when it comes to our physical bodies, but we're not in our country when it comes to our spiritual bodies. We walk into a world that is very adamantly against what we believe and so our job is to be ambassadors in this world the challenge of being an ambassador is not to change the world but to change the people in the world so how do we do that well look what paul says here we implore you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god this is strong language why do we need to plead to people i mean i just spent a few minutes laying out the new creation and how great it is why do we need to plead to people well, we have to remember what Jesus taught us. He said in John 3, 19, that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness 
rather than the light because their works were evil. So we plead with this world because it's brainwashing itself with absolute lies. It's taking its feet and planting them firmly in midair and saying, see, we're stable. See, I can decide who I am, and that's what matters. Instead, it's the exact opposite. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to show others what it means to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. Now, notice, it's not reconcile yourself to God, but it's God that reconciles us. It's a passive voice. It means to be reconciled by God to God through God. What part of that is us? We just sit back and enjoy the ride because ultimately the reconciliation is done by him. The gospel is not reconcile yourself or reconcile your neighbor. The gospel is be reconciled by God. And how will they know if we don't tell them? So there's four key implications from this. The first one we see is that we have to acknowledge our fault. We have to acknowledge that there is a problem with our reconciliation. We have to acknowledge that we have sin. And this is the first step to being able to understand the gospel is that there's a problem between us and God. The second thing we see is that the problem is with God. We have to be reconciled to God. We may try to reconcile ourselves to each other, but ultimately, if we're not reconciled to God, it's not going anywhere. The third, we see that flesh is gone. Reconciling with God means we have to jettison all of our worldly way of looking at things. That means we've got to throw aside all of the ways that the world says, you are this or you are that. I mean, think about it. What's more important? Winning someone to my ideology or my political party or saving someone's soul from hell? That's where we have to find that this flesh, these divisions of the flesh must fall away because guess what? We don't get to choose who our neighbors are, but they are there because we are to be ambassadors to them. We are to be ambassadors. We're to go for the king to show them what the king is like. And that leads to the fourth one. Pass it on. Those who are reconciled to God are a reconciling people. See, Paul's not interested in abstract doctrine. He wants concrete tasks. And this means we must adopt the status of a servant as an ambassador to go to those around us. And if we think about it, when we adopt this position, we're looking just like our Savior. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Who does the reconciling there? The the son is a long ways off, and the father who's been sitting there waiting, looking for the son, runs to him. And fixes the relationship. He goes and does the work. And there's a second son. And that second son is away and pouting. And the father goes to him. That's the God we serve. There's nothing better than being like the God we serve. And that's the reconciliation that we are called to do. So this leads us to one of the most famous verses in the Bible. If you want an encapsulation of the gospel, these 15 words are about the best explanation of it. <clears throat> for, your, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is so, so packed with information. We're going to walk through it line by line. So the first part, for our sake, okay? The very first line, for our sake. This is saying, out of sheer grace, God did this in light of our need. We needed it. 
So he did it. Next, we see he. Who's the he here? This is God the Father. God the Father does it. Made him. This is the Son. To be sin. Notice, not sinful, but counted as a sinner. As all of the sins of the world placed on the Son. Who knew no sin. Jesus never gave up his flawlessness. He he was flawless the entire time. So could you bring me my water, Kate? So that in him, this is that uniting to Christ. Plugged into him spiritually. Try not to poke myself in the eye. So that that we are united to Christ spiritually and invincibly. We might become the righteousness of God. Notice this union clothes us in his righteousness. No longer are we seen in our filthy rags. Instead, we are seen rightly in Christ. Our identity is now solely in Christ. God treats Jesus like we deserved and treats us like Jesus deserved. We call this imputation. This is us being treated like Christ and Christ being treated like us. See, the thing we need to remember is that the wrath of God has been exhausted. It is gone. It's been poured out on Jesus on our behalf. There is no more wrath for us if we're in Christ. He became our substitute. This means he was killed in our place. And this was, this was in prophecy hundreds of years before the Bible ever came around to it. Isaiah 53, i got to show these to you because they're just too impressive. The suffering servant, this is talking directly about Jesus. Look at, they'll be on the screen so you can track them. Chapter 53, verse 4 says, Surely he bore our griefs. That's the word sin. 53, 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 53, 11, he shall bear their iniquities. And then 53, 12, he bore the sin of many. This precise fulfillment of prophecy about Jesus is for us, every single one of us. Christ gets treated how we deserve. We get treated how he deserved. This is our new identity. And until until our glorification in those new heavenly bodies, we are in Christ's righteousness. And we get to see that. We can sum up this verse like this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner. He brought him, the sinless one, to be the substitute for sinners. Depicted in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, a substitute giving his life for a sinner. On the cross, God killed Jesus with his wrath over your sin instead of doing it to you. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life as if he lived my life. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had personally committed every single sin ever committed by every single person who has ever believed in him throughout history. And God treated him as if he had done every single one. So this is what Christ has done. So in response to that, we go and we share the good news. We don't keep it to ourselves. We let others know. So this leads us to our last two verses and our last point, and that is we must live the gospel. We must live the gospel. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, 
say, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now, today is the day of salvation. So the warning here that Paul gives is he says, don't receive this grace in vain. Don't receive it in vain. It's possible to have this incredible story, this gospel that we've been focusing even more than usual on, and not believe it, and to have it be in vain. The first way you can have it not to be in vain is if you do not respond to the call to be reconciled to God. This is the being part. If you're not in Christ, if you're not that new creation, you are all the way on the outside of this. If you are in Christ, you are on the inside. This is the being And here's the amazing thing is, just like I said throughout this entire thing, it's God, God, and God. God does it. And today's the day of salvation for you if that is not what you've ever done before. The second way we can miss this grace of God and have the receive it in vain is that we do not live as reconciled reconcilers. This is the doing part. See, our activity must be transformed. If we are transformed, then our activity is transformed. And praise be to God, just like he was in charge of the saving, he's in charge of the sending as well. The doing stems from him doing it through you. And you can live that out today, a new identity. So these 50 days of of gospel that we have done have all been about the grace of God. Each week you've received different messages of grace. You've heard things like, It produces reconciliation. The gospel produces rest. The gospel produces victory. It produces humility. It produces love. And today it produces purpose. My prayer is that it would not be in vain. All of this, though, is the gospel fruit. Ray Ortland, in his book, The Gospel, that we've been going through, said over and over again, gospel doctrine produces gospel culture. And that's that's a hard thing to understand. Gospel doctrine is the being. It's who we are. It's our identity in Christ. The gospel culture is what we do. It's the fruit. See, all these topics that we've discussed over these last six weeks, the rest and victory and humility and love and purpose, are all fruits of a gospel relationship, not the gospel. We have to remember that. We have to make sure we get these in the right order. We must know who we are being and then what we do doing. We began the gospel message talking about being reconciled to God. Now we've come full circle. We understand that we're reconciled to God. Now it's time to share the reconciliation with others. May this be a lesson in itself, that once we are reconciled to God, we are to reconcile. If we are reconciled to God, we must reconcile others. The order matters. Who we are informs what we do. Because the gospel doesn't stop here. The gospel is what we talk about. It's what we live. It's what you're going to talk about when you're fellowshipping with each other here in a few minutes. It's what we sing about. And guess what? Spoiler alert. It's what we're preaching about next week when we look at a psalm. Because the gospel is everything about our relationship with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the many blessings that you've given us, Lord. We do not deserve to be reconciled to you. We have done nothing 
other than committing the sins that have alienated us from you. But Lord, you have come in and died for us on behalf of that. And you rose again on behalf of that. And Lord, you have counted us righteous in you. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that we would understand our new identity and that new identity would inform how we interact with every single person we see today as ambassadors for the gracious and loving and glorious King. We pray for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that this church would be an ambassador-filled church as we go out into the world this week. Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need your help. We need you to do it. So, Lord, please do it in us. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen.